right, welcome back to the Fitz News Studios for another edition of your Week in Review. We've got a wild week this week, a ton of different stuff to cover, starting with infrastructure. We're going to walk you through an update on the state of South Carolina's biggest ever roads project. Is it going according to plan or have the plans been jumbled a bit? We're going to walk you through the very latest on that. Our Andy Fancher and Dylan Nolan are also going to sit down and talk about a major cyber outage this past week involving AT&T. Andy did a huge piece on the site that delved into some serious tinfoil hat stuff. They're going to sit down and walk you through all the conspiracy theories. And you know, I love the tinfoil hat conspiracies as much as the next guy. Finally, Dylan Noel and I are going to recap last week's first in the South presidential primary. We're going to dive into the numbers, look at each district, how the candidates performed, and talk about the race as it moves forward to Super Tuesday. We're going to also walk you through the results in Michigan last week, which were also pretty significant for the trajectory of this race. All that and more is coming your way on the Week in Review. So if you follow this media out for any period of time, you know that we like to focus on core functions of government and on holding our leaders accountable for the way they spend your money. Too often, we see politicians blowing your cash on stuff that we simply shouldn't fund, non-essential spending like higher ed and all of the woke indoctrination that's going on within that complex. Meanwhile, core needs like our prisons, guards for our prisons, go neglected. At Fitz News, we try to draw those issues into focus and show you exactly where your money's going so that you can decide whether or not it constitutes a responsible investment. Nowhere has your investment been less responsibly applied than infrastructure. For decades, South Carolina has been decades behind some of its most pressing critical infrastructure projects. And if you don't believe me, drive Interstate 95 through the Palmetto State. Seriously, it is literally an Afghan airfield on the best of days. But as we have covered this issue, we have noted that the South Carolina Department of Transportation has undertaken several major projects in an attempt to fix some of the most critical infrastructure bottlenecks. The biggest one, the Carolina Crossroads, a project here in the Midlands region of the state. This week, we exclusively reported on the latest developments on that project and a schedule of construction that has been jumbled in the hopes of finally, at long last, untangling the intersection known as Malfunction Junction. Here is our report on the state's biggest ever infrastructure project. So for years at Fist News, we've talked about how infrastructure needs in South Carolina have been driven by politics, not by the needs and interests of the citizens and businesses that rely on our roads and bridges to move their families, to move goods, services. South Carolina Department of Transportation officials, though, in recent years have been undertaking one of the biggest, most significant infrastructure projects in the Palmetto State's history. I'm referring to the Carolina Crossroads Project. You can see part of it behind me. This is a lane widening on Interstate 26, about 12 miles northwest of downtown Columbia, South Carolina. It is just one part of a massive, multi-year, multi-phase project that aims to untangle a huge mess of interstate congestion just northwest of the capital. Now, for those of you who have lived in the Midlands region of South Carolina, you know about Malfunction Junction. This, of course, is the confluence of Interstate 20, Interstate 26, and Interstate 126 coming out of Columbia, South Carolina. It's an outdated cloverleaf inter interchange built decades ago that cannot handle the modern influx of congestion and traffic moving through the center of the Palmetto State. Well, four years ago, DOT officials announced the launch of this project, which is intended to untangle that mess and modernize not only 
those key intersections northwest of Columbia, but to widen and add interchanges up and down this interstate system. Now we're sitting here on a new bridge. It was built just last year. This is one of several new bridges and interchanges that are part of this $1.6 billion project. And again, that's the initial price tag. That number could go up in the coming years. Obviously a lot of inflation has happened since then, but additional projects, additional lane widenings. Now we've learned that the widening of roads on Interstate 20, which is a big part of this project, is gonna start next year in 2025. And the major overhaul of those interchanges, the two interchanges, 20 and 26, and Interstate 126 and I-26 coming out of Charleston, those interchanges are gonna be upgraded beginning in 2026. I'm saying 2026 a lot here, people. A lot of interstates, a lot of interchanges, but there is a symmetry coming together here as this long-awaited project finally, finally moves to completion. Now, why didn't it happen years ago? I wanna tell you why. As I mentioned at the outset, for far too long, politicians in Columbia have allowed their pet projects or their economic development deals to prioritize infrastructure spending. We saw it down in Berkeley County with the big Volvo project. We saw it up in Rock Hill in York County with the Carolina Panthers interchange, which by the way, that deal completely collapsed, but taxpayers still on the hook for tens of millions of dollars. In Dillon County, an interchange was built literally where an interstate doesn't even exist part of an effort to pressure the federal government into funding Interstate 73 there in the South Carolina PD. Again, these are not core projects. This, folks, is a core project. But if you want your infrastructure dollars to be spent properly, count on Fitz News to continue to hold those politicians accountable for how they are spending, again, what amounts to billions of dollars of your money. Once again, count on Fitz News to focus on differentiating between those crony capitalist projects that are wasting your infrastructure dollars and core needs like the Carolina Crossroads. It's your money, billions of dollars of it, in fact. That's why we focus so intently on how it's being spent. Also this week, speaking of infrastructure, our Andy Fancher filed a big report on a cyber outage that impacted AT&T and could potentially be connected to several other hacking incidents or solar flares. We still don't know exactly what caused the big AT&T outage last week, but Andy and Dylan are going to sit down and walk you through how last week's outages and the potentially interconnected events associating them could impact you moving forward. Here's Andy and Dylan. We here at Fitz News start every day with a morning meeting, and this week, Andrew Fancher missed a morning meeting for a reason that actually ended up turning into a story. Andy, tell the folks at home why you were late. Sure. So it all started, my my trials and tribulations started at about 4 a.m. that morning. I'm a bit of a night owl. I was out and my phone stopped working. Conveniently, I was on a dark road in Gilbert, South Carolina on my way home. Didn't think much of it. Yeah, that's a different I'm not, story. I'm not quite sure what's going on in your life, but I don't think that that's what we need to go down here. Nonetheless, I was traveling late at Gilbert, South Carolina, and didn't think much of it. I managed to get home without navigation. Went to bed, woke up the next morning. I've got SOS on my phone, and I still don't really have any connection to SOS broadband. not meaning like the thing that happens when you hit the button on the side of your phone too many times and it says it's going to call the cops, but SOS meaning you're you're out of cell service, right? Meaning I'm out of cell service. Unless I'm on Wi-Fi, and I am in complete dark. you live in the Columbia dark. Metro, so this is an 
uncommon occurrence for you. Oh, it's, you know, one of the largest cities in South Carolina. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you travel into the remote corners of the state, you're going to you're going to encounter cell phone issues, uh, as I think any reporter has in South Carolina. But this was this was different. And yes, for that reason, for my connectivity issues, I was unable to attend the morning meeting until I landed here in our studio and I connected to the Wi-Fi on my computer. I wasn't even able to make calls, which is very interesting because if you're on Wi-Fi, typically you're able to make these Wi-Fi calls. But I was essentially radio dark with the exception of messaging. And you're just thinking at this point in time, okay, I got a problem with my cell phone. I remember you came into my office and were like, hey, man, have you ever had this happen to your phone before? What What do you mm-hmm. do? Mm-hmm. And I told you I had a problem with my SIM card a couple months back that I went down to the, uh, the T-Mobile right. store and they were able to sort out for me within half an hour. Mm-hmm. And so you went on your merry way to the AT&T store, your service provider. And what did you see once you got there? Well, yeah, once I printed out the map to the AT&T store, (laughs) we were going Stone Age here, yeah. I I pull up to the AT&T store, and I I was greeted with a scene out of a movie. We're talking cars down the corridor. We're talking people frantically standing outside of the AT&T store. And again, in my ignorance, I thought maybe this is just a day in the life of an AT&T store. I never go to these things. So by the time I file in and get in there, they pretty much... They metaphorically grab me by my shoulders and push me back out and say, read the signs out front. And the signs out front were quite alarming. Uh, AT&T, per the signs and credited to management, we're experiencing a nationwide network issue, and we have no idea when things will be back up and running. And I think it was around this time, because, you know, every morning... I try to get myself on the page of what's what's going on in the, this crazy world that we live in. So I go read a number of news outlets, and one of them is Wall Street Journal. And I noticed on the left-hand side of their news publication, probably four or five stories down, was mm-hmm. nationwide uh, service outage effects. I, it was some very large number, I believe 75,000 AT&T customers. Yeah, we're going to say it was approximately 74,000 depending on the best-case scenario that you're looking at if you're AT&T. So the reason that we have those numbers, the reason the Wall Street Journal had those numbers and published it minutely in the bottom corner, was thanks to a provider called Down Detector that automatically, with the help of third-party providers and what have you, pretty much counts outages across the nation. We can go on there right now. Everybody's got an outage every day. But when you went on Down Detector that morning, which I subsequently did, you saw the line graph go like this. But the thing is, it wasn't just for AT&T. So Down Detector started reporting outages about when I experienced my outage. So we're going to say 3.30 a.m. By 9.06 a.m., they had reported 74,000 outages with AT&T alone. Now, what mainstream media and what everybody else failed to recognize is that there were six other major networks experiencing these outages per down detector, which is a subsidiary of Ookla, which is a a major service intelligence provider for the globe. So why discredit them, which Verizon subsequently did, for saying, how dare you, down detector, report that there's any issues with our network. In fact, it's just Verizon and T-Mobile customers trying to get a hold of AT&T people who are having issues. So unofficially, we're looking at approximately 20,000 outages reported by Down Detector across six different network providers. So that brings us to approximately 100,000 
people with cellular outages or total blackouts in major cities, mind you, across America starting at 3.30 a.m. And much later on, after Verizon and T-Mobile assailed down detector, I love this, they put out a new number, a new number that mainstream media didn't even recognize at all, which is that within this blackout area that lasted approximately 11 hours, 1.7 million Americans reported cell phone issues. So 1.7 million, uh, 75,000, those numbers don't exactly square. You're telling me that the 75,000 is what the Ookla service, and by the way, this is, you know, if you've gone to like speedtest.com, they're the people who run that. So they are definitely at the backbone of the internet, uh, mm-hmm. you know, infrastructure world. Uh, so they are people that would be well positioned to know, but it sounds like there could be quite many more people than even they were able to detect that were affected by this. And as we started the segment out by saying it didn't quite break into the world of uh, major headline news. Despite, oh. I mean, this is something that I look at it and I think this should probably be one of the headline stories of the day across the whole country. Right. I mean, a, a quite significant percentage, if we look at that 1.7 million number, of the United States population was not able to use their cell phones, which as we know, I mean, it's a backbone of how we do our work. Mm-hmm. I see you spend about a third of your day pacing around the Fitz News parking lot talking to various people on the phone. Right. And we're not the only people who are completely reliant on our phones to be able to conduct business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that this was happening at a very similar time as another suspicious cyber event that you went into in your article that you subsequently wrote about your experience. Correct. And before we even get into that, I want to I, I want to discuss the word conspiracy here. Will Will tagged us uh, as tinfoil hat wearers at the beginning of the show. Thanks for that, Will. By the way, yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, no, I just I want to address this here because I am not insinuating anything. All I'm simply doing, and you and I, Dylan, we've talked about impartiality in journalism. I simply wanted to provide the public with information that hasn't been readily disseminated across mainstream media because there was a lot happening simultaneous with the AT&T outages that, quite frankly, went unreported. I mean, they didn't necessarily go unreported, but it's very clear that there's not a desire to dig into what the heck happened on the part of the mainstream media. Correct. So long as AT&T is providing uh, assuring statements to mainstream media, everybody is happy. And it's also worth noting that it took AT&T three days with the help of four different government agencies to come up with a reason for the outage, which is that they were testing a new process. Sorry. Well, and uh, you ended your quote with a, I forget the guy's first name, last name Levin, with a really interesting quote where he said, look, we're never going to know what happened this Mm -hmm. week. Uh, It could have been an innocuous testing error. It could have been something else. And, And the reason that we're... Uh, suspicious of this is that it's a part of modern warfare. Fifth generation warfare, as you hear people discuss, is mm-hmm. cyber attacks. And it's unfortunate, you know, the United States for years has enjoyed this position of being able to uh, exercise hard power across the world mm-hmm. with our enemies having a very limited ability to retaliate short of flinging nuclear missiles around. Uh, in the era of Shahed drones, in the era of cyber attacks, Suddenly, these asymmetric enemies, which had, you know, very limited windows to attack us in the past, Mm -hmm. have ways which they can impact us on a massive scale. So something like uh, a vulnerable national cell network, 
uh, or maybe utilities. We saw the big lockup of the Northeastern mm-hmm. uh, gasoline delivery system. What was that, two years ago now? Right. It's something that certainly should be front page news anytime it happens because it's a very real vulnerability that we face here in America now. Yet it doesn't make front page headline, such as what happened simultaneous with the AT&T outages. Whether or not there's any correlation, that that is for our readers to decide. And I don't think we'll ever know for sure. No, perhaps not, unless the the bad actors come out and claim credit for it. But it seems like these folks aren't really in it for the headlines. Yeah, so do you want to talk a little bit about the, the Black Cat hack that we've kind of been dancing around here? Of course. Let's go into Black Hat. We've teased it long enough. So simultaneous with the AT&T outages that were anywhere from 73,000 to 1.7 million Americans affected was a confirmed cyber attack initially suspected as a national state cyber attack, so something perpetrated by a foreign enemy on the largest healthcare technology provider in America. We're talking about Change Healthcare, which is a subsidiary of United Way. Which is where we get our health care. Which is where we get our health care. So Change Healthcare, according to the HIPAA Journala, it touches about one-third of Americans' health records on a given year. Again, largest healthcare technology provider. They essentially provide the wires for a healthcare provider to send a prescription to CVS, to Walgreens. This impacts so many people across the nation. And according to some government agencies, it appears that this was leaked out by accident. The bad actor in this instance is Black Cat, which, according to our intelligence bureaus, have some Russian affiliation, some Russian ties. But these boys are no laughing matter. It seems like they will forever be a step ahead of the do-gooders. They came up in about 2021, um, and since then they have they have attacked domestic government institutions, foreign governments. I mean this this is a this is a global they enterprise the whole at this city point. City in Canada, uh, city of Alexandria. They suspected to have attacked Florence, Colorado, which is important because one of our largest or is it ADX Florence where they kept the Unabomber? Is that not the most secure? prison in America. So they were suspected to have um, hacked the city where our wonderful prized Supermax is held, as well as Swiss airliners, designer stores, MGM International. That was that was a huge when they saw the simultaneous attack of MGM and Caesars International. I mean, you talk about what happened in Las Vegas, the hack that they successfully pulled off that we know about. You were telling me it it's like a movie scene where across these casino floors, all of their electronic gambling devices, suddenly these casinos had the option of being permanently locked out of their devices, having no ability to make any more money mm-hmm. or paying up. And uh, in your article, you said that this group has netted at least $300 million through these tactics in recent years. Uh, the United States government putting multi-million dollar bounties on the heads of any individuals involved with this. With, Which shows I, how much they know. Well, I mean, and that's not an uncommon tactic. Right. But the point being here, you know, we have these two seemingly unrelated stories. We have the AT&T grid going down uh, with, I would say, an insufficient explanation as to what happened. And we have a confirmed cyber attack in, in 
that mm-hmm. influenced about a third of the United States population, uh, the, the medical pipeline through which their information flows. Actively. Right. Um, and I think the thing that disturbed us here at Fitz News was the way that we saw the mainstream media not paying very much attention to it, which is why we're dedicating a segment to our Week in Review show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's highly likely that in coming years, cyber attacks will be uh, a very prevalent event in our lives uh, as global tensions escalate Mm -hmm. and we Mm -hmm. pick fights or are unwittingly thrown into fights uh, with enemies, foreign and domestic, the likelihood that somebody is eventually going to take a major swipe at a piece of domestic infrastructure here within the United States, whether that be our cell phone grid, whether that be our medical system, whether that Mm -hmm. be our water, our sewage, our gasoline, all of which are extremely interconnected in the age of everything being digitized, uh, only goes up. And it's certainly, as members of the independent media here who are kind of looking at the media landscape and trying to see where are narratives being implanted mm-hmm. uh, and, and where is true journalism happening, when you see something that to any to any real journalist li- like you or I, who, you know, mm-hmm. you just happen to be thrown into this situation as one of the many people affected, right. um, you look at the way that this is being covered and it certainly doesn't scream that this is being covered completely independently and that there's not some sort of influence by the folks up in D.C. to cover this in a certain way as to avoid hysteria and panic. And and I guess on that note, uh, we're talking about a, a potentially vulnerable infrastructure, in fact, an infrastructure that has demonstrated itself as being vulnerable, thanks to whether it's domestic or international bad actors as cybersecurity agencies like to refer to them as. So I'd like to leave us with this, a message from Black Cats. So in December of last year, Black Cats Darknet server was confiscated in a joint, wonderful national effort to quarrel whatever they were planning next. And you know, when you go onto a website that's been confiscated, you can see that the government makes a nice little graphics package and says this website has been confiscated, all right, kind of impenetrable beyond that point for any agency that they decide to confiscate. Well, Black Cat created a new word within hours of the U.S. government announcing that they had confiscated the website, which is unseized. Black Cat unseized the FBI's confiscated website, and in that, they delivered a message to the public which said, Essentially, that the rules we've been operating with are no longer, and we are now committed to blocking U.S. critical infrastructure. Well, and that could be very well what is going on here. Count on us here at Fitz News to do our best, even if we got to don our tinfoil hats to pursue the truth wherever it might lead. We'll see what happens. So the first of the South presidential primary election in the books for 2024, and it was, as expected, a drubbing for former U.S. President Donald Trump, garnering nearly 60% of the vote here in South Carolina over former Palmetto State Governor Nikki Haley, who did not even hit the 40% margin. I'm here with Dylan Nolan, our producer of this show, director of special projects, and did some amazing political reporting in this race, Dylan, following it as these two candidates made their final appeals to South Carolina voters. Uh, Were you surprised, Dylan, by the margin? It was a little bit wider than the polls suggested. Yeah, and I think that your predictions held up well. However, I don't think that things deviated spectacularly from what we expected going in on Election Day. Yeah, I think we called 650,000, or I called, rather, 650,000 
people turn out. It ended up being higher than that, around 725, perhaps 750 by the time they're all done. But that was well short of what Haley supporters were calling for. Some of them had said almost a million. Yeah. And that would have obviously been necessary for her to have any chance of defeating Donald Trump here in South Carolina. But Dylan, let's talk a little bit before we go into where this race is headed next. Let's talk about where Haley did well versus where Trump did well. Obviously, there were 50 delegates at stake here in South Carolina. Uh, 29 went to the winner, which was obviously Trump by a double landslide. But then delegates were also apportioned based on who won the state's seven congressional districts. And this is always very interesting to track because it gives you a sense of, you know, we've got three competitive Republican congressional races coming up. Very interesting to look at these numbers in that context. But the one district where Haley prevailed was the first congressional district down Charleston, Beaufort. And this was where we saw, we believe anyway, a lot of Democratic crossover. And you were down there and you said Haley had some energy when she was there? Yeah. uh, So for folks who don't know, I covered Donald Trump's rally in North Charleston two weeks ago. The week after that, I covered Nikki Haley's rally in Beaufort. They have a very different type of energy. Donald Trump bringing a crowd probably five times larger uh, in a larger venue in an an event that's just gathered, you know, it generates more electricity. But Nikki Haley brought a bigger crowd and perhaps a more enthusiastic crowd in Beaufort than she had been bringing in other events throughout the state from the media coverage that I had seen. One of big reason for that, Tom Davis, uh, the state senator down in Beaufort, one of Haley's biggest South Carolina supporters. He's got a huge following down there. I'm sure he probably... I, I mean, and you know, I think that we in the media often put a lot of weight in endorsements, and it certainly doesn't hurt. But I think that the bigger thing is demographics. Uh, If you look, regardless of of the election, that's going to be one of the bluer parts of the state. And also, it's an older part of the state, specifically the town of Beaufort. And the folks that I saw at that rally were a lot of older people who might be uh, a little bit more amenable to the Reagan brand of republicanism, which I think that she is the standard bearer for in an era of populism. That global interventionist, neoconservative, they call it. Right. That sort of aggressive, muscular foreign policy. Yes. Well, let's look at that district. Nikki Haley got 52.5% of the first congressional district. Again, it was the only South Carolina congressional district that she won. We start going around. Let's go to District 3. This is the most Republican district in the entire state, according to the Cook uh, partisan voting index, the PVI, the Cook Report, 67.5% for Trump. In that district, Haley got only 32%. That's a much more representative district of the MAGA movement, Dylan. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you remember when Nancy Mace was facing an, a pretty difficult battle to get back in Congress, who was she campaigning alongside but Nikki Haley? And now her district has just voted for Nikki Haley. And, of course, Man- Mace has... Uh, completely deviated and gone with Trump. So that was uh, certainly an interesting piece of calculus as we're looking at the situation now where her district was the only one that voted for Haley. And Mace has a competitive challenger, uh, Catherine Templeton, a former two-time cabinet uh, director for Nikki Haley, a former gubernatorial uh, candidate back in 2018. She is running against Nancy Mace in that first district. Now, the other districts, again, you go around the horn here in South Carolina. The second district went for Trump with 55%. The fourth went with 59%. Uh, the fifth district, 65%. I mean, these are just landslides. Uh, a little closer in the sixth district, a Democrat heavy district, Trump got 53% of the vote there. 
And then finally, in the 7th District on the coast, Trump crushed it 67.8%. Another... I mean, when we saw Trump in, in Florence, it was clear that that's Trump country up there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one other thing, before we move on, we're going to talk about the, where this race is going. But one other result, South Carolina Republican voters and the Democrats who crossed over for Haley voted on a judicial reform question, Dylan, and it was... A lot Res- resounding. Yeah. It was question number two on the ballot. There was three questions posed to Republican primary voters, basically asking them whether they viewed judicial reform as necessary. And 91% of respondents, just over 91% of respondents, said that they felt that that was necessary. I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you and I both, we cast ballots in first in the South. We're not going to get into our presidential preferences, but I'm happy to say I voted hell yes on that. Judicial reform. I didn't see a hell on my ballot, but you can guess which way I voted. <laughs> Absolutely. So moving forward, obviously, hopefully that will be something that spurs state lawmakers into action on judicial reform. They are in the middle of debating it in the Senate right now, uh, a bill that's been put forward by solicitor, former solicitor Greg Hambree, current senator from Murray County. Uh, along set with, for special order. Set for special order. That means it's at the top of the calendar, folks, and they're going to be debating it at the beginning of the week next week. So we'll be keeping you uh, up to speed on that in our next show, more than likely. But back to presidential politics, Dylan, looking forward to Michigan. Uh, That was where the next votes were this past week after South Carolina. It did not go well for Nikki Haley in Michigan either, did it? And predictably so. But I think that uh, Joe Biden's fate in Michigan might actually be the real story there. What do you mean? Well, uh, if, if folks aren't familiar, Michigan has a unusually large contingent of folks who are aligned with Palestine in the Israeli-Palestine-Gaza conflict. And a lot of them turned out to vote for not Joe Biden. Uncommitted, that's right. Right, uncommitted votes. Um, And this is a really interesting rift at the center of the Democratic Party right now. And it comes at a really bad time for them as they might potentially be replacing Joe Biden at a convention if he has health issues, which certainly is not a non-zero factor between now and then, uh, given some of the recent things we've seen. Um, and it's a big terror because you look at you know party leaders Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. These people are as pro-Israel as it is possible to be, but there are millions of people in the Democratic progressive left base who completely disagree with Zionist foreign policy and who are willing to clearly exert uh, pretty extreme pressure on the leadership of their party to not pursue Zionist policies. Well, let's talk about that protest vote, if you will. It was uh, the goal was 10,000. They wanted 10,000 people to vote uncommitted to show Biden a margin that could potentially cost him the election. Dylan, they got 10 times that. Last count, over 101,000 Democratic primary voters in Michigan went against Joe Biden, voted uncommitted. How does an incumbent deal with something like that? It's interesting because, you know, if you want to view it this way, it's it's a real attack on the current political paradigm. Donald Trump is an attack on the uh, foreign policy establishment pro-Zionist paradigm on the right. And this is a major torpedo on the left. So the, you know, United States place in the world, uh, foreign policy stage as a whole, is set to shift in, in coming decades as a result of this. Here's some other numbers that I wanted to throw at you about this uh, Michigan primary. Obviously, the votes were held on the same day, unlike South Carolina. Both the Democratic and Republican primaries Mm -hmm. in Michigan were held on the same day. 768,000 turned out for the Democratic primary. 
and again, of those, a huge chunk, as we just mentioned, did not support Joe Biden. On the Republican side, Dylan, 1.1 million. So you're looking at a gap of 400,000 between the turnout for the Republicans and the turnout for the Democrats. Trump easily outdistanced uh, Biden, and Republicans clearly outvoted Democrats. Can we still call Michigan a swing state? Well, I, obviously, this, the real answer there is going to come in November. I think that trying to put too much stock in t- Democrat term out, turnout at a primary election where there's nobody else on the ballot, I, I don't want to read into that too much. Fair point. But you could also argue that the Republican election was pretty much a foregone conclusion. I mean, Trump was leading in the polls over Nikki Haley by 50%, according to some measures. He ended up winning, it looks like, more than 42%. Wasn't that race pretty much over, too? It, it was pretty much over, but I think a lot of people uh, in Trump's camp are motivated to go to the polls to vote against Nikki Haley. And I think a lot of people that are Republicans but who despise what Trump and his ilk have done to the party were very motivated to come to the polls to vote for Nikki Haley. Sure enough. Fair enough. Well, Michigan, part of that blue wall, it's a swing state that helped keyed Trump's 2016 victory. It was also a, a state that was essential to Biden. Also, interesting to look... You, uh, you talked about these constituencies on the Democratic side. Our Mark Powell had a great observation in one of his columns on Fist News this week. Mark Powell was talking about how Joe Biden went out of his way to court that union vote in Michigan, where the auto workers, such a huge part of that Democratic base, does not seem to pay dividends. In fact, those union workers seem to be gravitating more toward Trump. And it's interesting because if you look at both of the foreign policies of, of Trump and Biden, although they have very different rhetoric, both of them have moved towards pulling America back on the world stage. Now, you might look at uh, Biden's willingness to engage Russia in a proxy war and say he, he's clearly for this muscular foreign policy, but there are many places which his administration, at least before other you know actors on the world stage intervened and, and forced their hand into military intervention, um, was going to follow Trump's policy of pulling back America's engagement for the world and reshoring many of the industries which globalism projected onto the world. Well, obviously, in the aftermath of these results, we've seen a number of things happen. There was a huge New York Times story revealing a secret network of CIA-funded bases in Ukraine, literally spying on Russians and equipping Ukrainians with intelligence to conduct bombing missions inside Russia. We had that happen. We had Hunter Biden give a deposition in which he admitted that his father was indeed the big guy uh, that was referenced on these cryptic messages obtained. So a, a huge headache for Joe Biden as it relates to the Ukraine scandal. And I would say this is why, you know, I'm still talking about the potential for Joe Biden having a, a health emergency cause him to withdraw his candidacy. We've now reached the point where there no Democrat can file and run in the Democrat primary. He will clearly be the person who proceeds through that process. Now, will he go to the convention? Will he accept his party's nomination? And will he run all the way until November? Only time will tell. Uh, I'm reading pundits on one side say that these mounting scandals, which you're referencing, are going to be enough to take them off the board. But then I see pundits on the other side saying there's no way which he can be removed unless he himself chooses to. So we'll see. And, of course, the week capped off with a disastrous visit for Biden to the U.S.-Mexico border where nearly 10 million Illegal immigrants have crossed since he became president. Obviously, he made such a huge deal about reversing the policies of Trump, the wall building, the aggressive deportations, uh, the COVID-era restrictions on entry, reversing all of those things. And sure enough, when you open the floodgates, guess what happened, Dylan? Yeah, the flood. Uh, And it's interesting because 
the Democrat Party, the media spent Trump's four years in office absolutely deriding his policies. Uh, and, you know, they actually ended up now a couple of years in the Biden presidency supporting a very similar group of policies because they were being put in place for a reason. Of course, there's been a big social touchstone on this issue in Georgia where a young uh, female was murdered this week by an illegal alien while she was jogging on campus. Somebody who, frankly, many people in this country believe had no reason to be here. Uh, so the optics are, as you say, definitely not good for Biden on this issue. Absolutely. And of course, on the same day, Biden is seen shuffling along a, a section of the wall. Trump stands alongside uh, folks in Texas and supporting Governor Abbott down there as they seek to assert their authority where the federal government has failed to enforce and secure the border of Texas. Uh, just a tremendous uh, disconnect there between Trump's show of force and Biden looking very frail as he shuffled along that border wall. And Dylan, we've been there. We've been to the wall. Uh, we've been to the Yuma sector in Arizona where 51% of the fentanyl that comes through this country crosses. Uh, any thoughts on how this issue plays out over the course of the next few months ahead of the election? I, I think that this issue is on the top of the minds of many Republican voters. And I think that, you know, you can look at the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York, both guys who are hardcore partisan on the left, uh, saying that this issue is going to quite literally, quote, destroy their cities. Because so many folks have come in that the social services, which have been financially tenuous uh, at best, are, are now completely unable to operate. So while it's an issue that I think on the partisan right, people are going to continue to be fired up about, and, you know, God bless them, I don't think that they have any reason to not be fired up about that issue. I do think it's something that people, even not on the partisan right, are just going to see in their communities and, and feel and say, why is this being allowed to happen? So... While you're not going to see anybody on the partisan left talking about the issue, I do think that there are going to be some folks who have traditionally voted blue who are going to see changes in their community who might reconsider their voting patterns as a result. Absolutely. In fact, our last immigration article, we saw some numbers from the Pew Center, which is typically veers a little to the left on this polling, showing independents and Democrats even starting to get it, starting to recognize the gravity of the situation. I mean, if money is, you know, taken from your child's school to pay for housing uh, of illegal immigrants, or as we've seen in New York, your child's school is literally shuttered so that illegal immigrants can live in it while your child's classes are online, and then you have to, you know, not go to work so that you can watch your kid. Uh, and this is a real, this is not some, like, Republican talking point. This is a real thing that happened uh, at a school in New York. That's the kind of thing that makes you seriously reconsider how you're voting. Indeed. By the way, if you missed it on Fitz News, our Prelo Alexander had a wonderful piece on Texas and how that looming back and forth between the state of Texas and the feds could lead to bigger things. Prelo's piece, be sure to check it out on Fitz News. It's a wonderful article. Also, speaking of wonderful reporting, Dylan, you're working hard on some stories at the South Carolina State House. You've been tracking a number of different issues this week. Before we head out of this segment, I wanted to ask you about one of them. You've been following the gun debate at the state house. Uh, what's the latest on that issue? So constitutional carry has been submitted to a conference committee. They've selected three senators, uh, th three house representatives. And as many uh, people who were advocating for sending the bill directly to the governor's desk predicted, the house representatives and senators who are on this conference committee are not likely to send a, uh, 
an improved version of the bill to the governor's desk if it ever makes it out of that conference committee. You and I had discussed on this show a couple of weeks ago, you know, the the gambit by folks who wanted a pure constitutional carry bill without any watering down, as they phrased it, uh, to send the bill back to the Senate or send it to this conference committee. And it seems as though members who wanted to just get the thing through, get it to the governor's desk, warts and all, uh, may, may have had a point. Now, we'll see. Does this conference committee ever let the bill out? Do they actually remove any of the amendments which the gun rights folks find objectionable? Only time will tell, but that's where it stands right now. Absolutely. You've done a great job keeping everybody in the loop. And I really appreciate the fact that on all these issues, we dig deep into the text of these bills, the debates taking place behind the scenes, the process by which these things happen. So much of the mainstream media coverage is very surface and you know, and, and it's difficult. I mean, you saw how much time I took the, printing out this, the firearm statute as it stands right now, printing out the bill, going through line by line, underlining, you know, calling people to ask questions about parts that I didn't understand. But it does mean that I'm very confident in what this bill is and, and, and where the statute stands and what it would be modified to in the event that this bill becomes law. And that helps you give our readers a much better perspective on what's actually happening on this debate, cut through all the spin, cut through all the sound bites. Yeah, there are a lot of people with a lot of political agendas, and if you don't have that underlying understanding of what's actually going on in the legislation, you're just going to get pulled in the direction of what one you know politically motivated group or another wants you to write. Speaking of hot-button issues regarding guns, we're going to go back to Michigan again. It seems like we're going back and forth here between uh, Columbia and Detroit, but let's talk about an issue that happened uh, up there back in 2021, uh, school shooting, 15-year-old boy murdered four classmates at a school, uh, Oxford, up there. There are charges against him. He pleaded guilty to those, serving life in prison, as he should be. In fact, I would argue probably should have gotten more than that. But, but the issue that we discussed this week involved not the charges against the shooter, but the charges against the shooter's parents who have been found not only criminally negligent from a civil side, I mean, we're talking criminal manslaughter charges that were brought against them. And this week, the mother of that school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. Yeah. And we just had a very interesting interview. I don't know. Do you want to play a clip from that? Yeah. We actually had our legal expert, Lauren Taylor, who, if you recall from the Murdoch trial, was uh, so big in, in our coverage of that big evidentiary hearing. We sat down with Lauren to get her thoughts on this Michigan case and the potential precedent that it sets for future cases like this. Let's cut to that interview. I think it's easy to see it from both sides. So just like you said, you know, if one of your precious children was a victim in a school shooting, you would want to be screaming from the rooftops for any and all people to be held liable. But what if one of your children was the perpetrator in this? And now you have this spotlight that's reflected back on your personal home life and people asking, well, what did you do wrong? You know, did you let him read too many magazines or her, or, you know, did you not supervise properly? Did you not, you know, provide adequate mental health treatment that they needed? And I think in, especially in a today, like 2024, so many people are doing the absolute most that they can with the absolute least. We have parents that are trying everything they can to afford daycare to make sure that they can actually go to work and making that stress that 
my kid could go do something that I have absolutely no control over, no ability to know every single, as much as we want to say, we know, and we monitor what our children do on the internet. I think we can all agree that there is no way to tap into every single thing and protect that. And I think you're right. That's an extremely uncomfortable thought to now be sitting here thinking, not only am I going to deal with the horror that my child caused and the loss of life, but I'm, my whole family can be at risk because someone could interpret that I had something to do with that. Now, I think obviously that's an extreme scenario. The closest thing, you know, when I was reading about it was a mother who left her two children unattended and locked in a home and then the home caught on fire and she was charged with involuntary manslaughter. So I think it's going to be a law that is, the law is going to develop by the facts that are presented. So every situation, when we craft these laws, we're trying to do it in an all encompassing way so that we can kind of, you know, make sure everyone that's intended to be held accountable under that law actually is. However, in situations like this, it has to be so fact specific because we cannot allow parents to have that added pressure put on them that God forbid their child does do something horrible like this. And they didn't, you know, they didn't know every single resource available to them. Like people are struggling. We're already in a mental health crisis as a country. Um, to put that extra weight on a parent does seem unfair. Now, it also seems valid if the parent is deliberately not getting mental health treatment and instead providing access to assault, you know, weapons or things that could hurt someone. But it's it's a balance and it's not an easy thing to feel good about at night on either side. So Dylan, I, I come at this from two different directions. I'm a dad. I, something like this happens to one of my kids. I want to see as many people held responsible as possible. But as a rule of law adherent, as a supporter of individual liberty, as someone who gets a little nervous when government starts pursuing prosecutions based on potential negligence, I mean, this is a case that has all sorts of aggravating factors that Clearly, these parents, if it was a civil case, they would clearly bear some negligent responsibility in the wrongful death. But criminal? Man, so I just can't get there. What do you think about this, Roy? You know, it's interesting. I really liked what Lauren had to say in your interview. Um, if there's any case where criminal prosecution could successfully be pursued on these lines, this would certainly be the case. I would say that every aggravating factor is there. Um I don't know how I would feel about this if it wasn't so grossly negligent on the parents' part. Um, but as you can see in an article, which by the time that folks are watching this will be live on Fitz News, I recently just took a step back because I've been, you know, writing about the gun issue multiple, multiple times at a very granular policy level. And of course, in those articles, I was, I, I touched a little bit on the gun violence rates in South Carolina. If folks don't know, we are unfortunately a, a at the top of the list of states where people die from gunshot wounds here in the United States. Um, but I wanted to, and you know, this coverage at the, of the policy issue made me th think, you know, just had my mind spinning about, okay, what are the underlying causes of people dying from firearms? Um, a lot of people kill themselves with guns. And I think in a state where a lot of people own guns, a greater portion of the suicides are going to be with guns. I don't know, you know, obviously if we can improve the mental health problems in this country, we could do something to harm that. But the point of me looking into this article and thinking deeply about what can we do to stop these tragedies, uh, I, I think one of my main conclusions was we need to look at the underlying causes of 
what allows these people to commit these tragedies. And I don't know. I, I do have the same pause that you do about the invasion of civil liberties and, and the potential for abuse of this type of prosecution in the future. But I also can't imagine a future where we don't have frequent mass shootings if we, as a society, don't figure out a way to uh, assign some serious accountability for allowing these things to happen. I mean, where where does the buck stop uh, if you're allowed to know your child is mentally ill and provide them access to firearms? And uh, it, it's definitely a very difficult issue, but I think that we need to look the root cause of these problems in the eye if we're ever going to have a chance of solving them. Well, I think you're right, and certainly this is discussions like this are how we get there. And, and it's an uncomfortable discussion. It's not one where we, I can bandy on and have some big solution, like you know, some neatly, you know, you can tie it up with a bow legislative issue where we can say this is objectively better. It, our society is in many ways sick. Uh, we didn't see these mass shootings 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, we didn't see similarly gruesome and grotesque events. But I think that we've had a, a wave of nihilism and cynicism uh through our culture in in the last 50 or 60 years. And we could spend hours talking about how that progressed and, and what that means. But I think that until we are willing to start having some of these discussions of what the heck is going on in our culture that is leading so many young people to become so mentally ill that they do things like this, um, we're never going to move past it or we're, we're never going to have a shot of moving past it. Dylan Nolan, you think he's a producer, folks, a philosopher, poet here, man. That's Truly eloquent, man. That's absolutely right. A wave of nihilism. That's it's the nail on the head, man. We will have that full interview with Lauren Taylor coming up next week. Looking forward to sharing that and also looking forward to having her back on a number of the big cases that we're following. I spoke with Lauren after that interview. We walked through a number of the big true crime cases we're following, but also some of the bigger institutional cases that we'll be covering over the next few months here on Fitz News. We're so glad to have Lauren Taylor of Lauren Taylor Law as part of our team, bringing you that expert-level analysis of some of these, again, incredibly complex issues, Dylan Nolan. Uh, but Dylan, seriously, thanks you, thank you so much for your work on the, all these stories and, again, for your work on this show, making it, again, the vehicle it is to address these issues and have these conversations. Yeah, I, I don't think our mainstream media has done a great job of hosting uh a dialogue that's actually going to produce any change about these issues. So we can do what we can here in the independent media to try to provide an alternative. And again, that alternative, once again, is why Fitz News is here. And so once again, I want to thank all of you for tuning in this week to our Week in Review. If you haven't already, please like, subscribe, help us expand, extend that conversation. And if you haven't already, please go to FitzNews.com. It's only eight bucks a month. Your subscription helps to empower all of these important conversations that we're having about these key issues for our state, for our society. Thanks again, and we will catch you next time on your Week in Review.